This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 27. What's magnesium got to do with it? Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host, never afraid to bring the jibber-jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. Thanks for joining me once again today. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about magnesium based on a clinical practice review article from the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care in 2015. And as always, the reference will be in the show notes. Before getting into the podcast, I just wanted to thank Jem and Don Scott from the UK and Norvet from Norway for your five-star rating and review comments in iTunes. In his review comment, Donald said, I like the rant about scruffing cats in the Disney podcast. The best staff in my practice, bleeding cats, barely touch them, which was great to hear. So thanks very much for that. And if anyone else can spare a few moments to rate and review the podcast in iTunes, that would be fantastic. Okay, so let's get on with the episode. Now, look, I know that some of you might be thinking, why the heck is Shailen talking about magnesium? What's that got to do with anything? Well, I suspect magnesium is not something many of you have given much thought to, if at all, in fact, in recent times. And probably most of you do not have the ability to measure magnesium, at least not in a timely fashion. Am I right? Well, even if it is not something that you're going to be considering in your current clinical practice, I'm hoping that you will find the discussion interesting and informative. I'm going to base the episode on a paper from JVEC 2015 entitled Magnesium Physiology and Clinical Therapy in Veterinary Critical Care. And the authors are Sarah Humphrey, Rebecca Kirby, and Elkie Rudloff. As always, the reference is in the show notes, and if anyone would like a copy of the paper, please get in touch. Uh, Contact information at the end of the episode, as always. What I want to do is to present some of the key information from the article, but also look at the evidence that the authors use to support what they say, and therefore try and help to put it into some sort of context. The first line of the introduction says, magnesium is a cation with an escalating role in critical care medicine. And we should want to know firstly whether this is true, and if it is, is it a good thing? And is the evidence base supporting this escalating role theoretical, experimental, or clinical? So let's start with a bit of background theory. So the authors say that magnesium plays a pivotal role in cellular energy production and cell-specific functions in every organ of the body. Excess or deficiency of this important cation can result in life-threatening complications. So the majority Approximately 99% of magnesium is contained within cells, especially in bone, with less than 1% being found in the extracellular fluid. Serum magnesium is protein-bound, complex to anions such as citrate and phosphate, or ionized, 
And like with calcium, it is ionized magnesium, which is physiologically active in the serum. <coughs> Excuse me. So one of the points that I did want to make here, and it applies not just to magnesium, but to other things we measure in the blood too, is that we need to remember that when we measure the concentration of analytes in the bloodstream, that this may or may not reflect what is happening at a cellular level. Moreover, there can be discrepancies between changes in plasma concentration and changes in total body concentration. With respect to magnesium specifically, the authors say that intracellular magnesium is maintained at a constant concentration of 0.5 to 1 millimole per litre, despite significant fluctuations in extracellular magnesium concentrations. And so I think we need to bear this in mind when we are interpreting changes in plasma magnesium and potentially attributing clinical effects to them and considering magnesium supplementation. What are some of the normal cellular functions of magnesium? Well, I'm really not going to go into this in much detail at all, but the authors say that magnesium plays a pivotal role in the electrophysiology and iron flux across cell and mitochondrial membranes, ultimately impacting on energy production and release. One thing that is noteworthy is that magnesium affects cellular functions through its relationship with intracellular calcium, and in general this relationship is about competing with or otherwise influencing the movement of calcium. There are a variety of other suggested functions of magnesium that the authors mention in the article, but I'm not going to get into those here. In terms of magnesium absorption and excretion, total body magnesium content is dependent upon intestinal and renal magnesium absorption and excretion. So the next bit the authors go into is, when we start to move into more clinically relevant information, is about the measuring of magnesium. And they say that accurate magnesium of, uh, sorry, accurate measurement of total body magnesium is a challenge due to its intracellular location and activity. The current clinical standard is to quantitate serum total or ionized magnesium concentrations. Monitoring the biologically active serum ionized magnesium concentration is preferred over total serum magnesium concentration. But they point out that researchers have expressed concern that serum quantitation may not accurately reflect total body magnesium content, although there is some discrepant information about this. And the authors also point out that there are some research methodologies that allow intracellular magnesium to be measured, and one or more of these may become available for clinical use. But the bottom line is that most of you listening to this will, I suspect, not have access to serum magnesium measurement. Having said that, I have not checked through all the external labs to see whether they do or do not offer this. But of course, even if external labs do offer this, what would be most useful for something like magnesium is the ability to measure it in-house, and ideally, to measure ionized magnesium in-house. I know that some of you can do this, and I personally have had access to it at various points in my career. But of course, just to remind you that it remains a little unclear as to how the serum ionized magnesium that we are measuring correlates with total body magnesium, the vast majority of which is intracellular. The next part of the review article is dedica uh, dedicated to magnesium disorders, and the authors say that total body magnesium concentration is affected by dietary intake, gastrointestinal function, hormonal balance, redistribution of the magnesium cation, and excretion into a third body space or urine. 
Magnesium disorders can manifest with a multitude of clinical signs, none of which are specific for the magnesium disorder. And they provide a summary of mechanisms, causes, clinical signs, and treatment recommendations for both magnesium excess and deficiency. But reading what they've written, it seems to me that what we are saying is that your patient may have clinical signs that are compatible with a magnesium disorder, but those signs are not going to be pathonomic for a magnesium disorder. If you measure the serum ionized magnesium and it is abnormal, this may support the idea that the signs are due to a magnesium disorder, but not necessarily. And as such, the decision to treat is empirical and based on our good old friend, the risk-benefit assessment. In terms of magnesium excess, the authors say that the two most commonly reported causes of magnesium excess in both human and veterinary patients are renal failure and iatrogenic causes. Hypermagnesemia can occur when magnesium-containing drugs such as antacids, laxatives, or enemas are administered to patients with underlying renal disease. Hypotension is one of the key clinical complications of magnesium excess. The authors then go on to say that naturally occurring total hypermagnesemia has been reported to occur in up to 13% of critically ill dogs admitted to the ICU of one teaching hospital. And the same study found that dogs with hypermagnesemia were 2.6 times more likely to die of their underlying disease than dogs with normal serum magnesium. Dogs with renal disease had the highest median values for serum magnesium. And the paper that they are referencing is from 1994, and I will include the reference in the show notes. But look, what I wanted to remind you about here is how we should ideally approach evidence. I have not personally had the time to get hold of and critique this 1994 paper to see whether the conclusions that that the authors of that paper make are valid from a methodological point of view. So, for example, what reference range were they using for serum magnesium and how was this established? How many dogs are we talking about in their study? And what else, apart from the hypermagnesemia, was different about the dogs that died and might potentially explain the increased likelihood of death? So it's about not just taking what the authors of the review article say at face value in terms of how they represent that study, but also ideally going back to that study and critiquing it for its methodology and deciding actually whether its results and conclusions are valid or not. The authors of this review article here say that the concept that naturally occurring hypermagnesemia may have prognostic value warrants further study, which I think is fair enough because they say may rather than drawing a definitive conclusion. Okay, so what about magnesium deficiency? Well, the authors point out that a total body magnesium deficiency can exist in spite of a normal serum magnesium concentration. But they then go on to say that a diagnosis of ionized hypomagnesemia has been associated with a prolonged hospital stay in dogs, with ileus in horses following colic surgery, as well as a prolonged hospital stay and a higher incidence of mortality in hospitalized cats. The hospital length of stay for critically ill dogs with hypomagnesemia was reported to be twice as long as those with normal serum magnesium. Hypomagnesemia was also associated with concurrent hyponatremia and hypokalemia in dogs. The canine paper that they cite for this is that same 1994 paper. 
And they also reference one equine paper and one feline paper. And remember that we should ideally be reviewing those papers and not taking what the authors of the review article or indeed what the papers they reference say at face value. I'm not saying that this applies here because I've not taken the time to read and critique the references. But it is easy for authors to reference papers in support of a point of view without themselves actually critiquing their references. And then these statements then get propagated by readers of the review article when all along they could actually be based on poor evidence at best. And so in my view, it's much better to try and acknowledge this and be transparent about it, be transparent about what level of evidence one is citing and referencing in support of points that we are making. So moving on, the authors say that hypomagnesemia is common in critically ill human patients, and they go into a bit more detail citing some references. They also state that Although magnesium-depleted patients may represent a subset of patients with more severe disease, hypomagnesemia appears to be an independent predictor of outcome, and they cite one human study. So again, we need to be saying, well, okay, if there is good quality evidence that hypomagnesemia is common in critically ill human patients, does the same apply to critically ill dogs? And what about critically ill cats? Before I say a little about the treatment of magnesium disorders, I'm just going to mention some of the other points that the authors make with respect to magnesium deficiency. I think I've emphasized the need to keep an evidence-based perspective to all of this enough, so I'm not going to go on about it any longer. But again, please don't take all of this at face value and assume that it must apply to your patients without knowing how theoretical it is or which species it has actually been demonstrated in. So the additional points that I wanted to mention then are that firstly, hypokalemia can become refractory to standard potassium replacement therapy as a consequence of magnesium deficiency. Magnesium replacement may be necessary before potassium supplementation is effective. And actually, at the end of the review article, the authors present two cases which they say show the potential value of IV magnesium infusions in the treatment of small animal patients with refractory hypokalemia and ventricular tachycardia. The next point is that magnesium also apparently serves as a cofactor for insulin release and function, as well as in the maintenance of appropriate cellular uh, sensitivity to insulin. And so insulin resistance may develop secondary to magnesium deficiency. The authors then go on to talk about diabetic ketoacidosis and they say that hypomagnesemia is a common finding in diabetic ketoacidotic people. Ketoacidurea and glucosuria promote urinary magnesium excretion which can be exacerbated with fluid diuresis. In addition, a significant cellular redistribution of magnesium occurs as it moves from the extracellular space through the um, intracellular compartment with insulin therapy. And you'll remember that that's the same thing that we need to look out for with potassium in these cases. The authors go on to say that close monitoring for clinical signs of a magnesium deficit is necessary since a total body deficit may not be reflected in the measured serum magnesium concentration. The next point is that calcium and magnesium are affected in a similar manner by hormones. As many as one third of human patients with low serum magnesium 
may concurrently have low serum calcium. Correction of magnesium deficiencies may be required with refractory hypocalcemia. Magnesium deficiency has also been shown to affect gastrointestinal function and motility, and the authors recommend that magnesium deficiency should be considered a a differential in any patient with decreased stomach or intestinal motility. The next points that the authors make relate to reproductive system effects, and they say that magnesium has been successfully used in the treatment of preeclampsia and eclampsia in women since 1912. The anticonvulsant of choice for treating seizures due to eclampsia is magnesium. Hypomagnesemia hypomagnesemia may also be a factor in dogs presenting with eclampsia and should be considered when managing dogs with signs of eclampsia. And then there are potential cardiac effects. So the authors say that cardiac conduction abnormalities are one of the most common and serious manifestations of magnesium deficiency. Cardiac arrhythmias associated with hypomagnesemia include ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, supraventricular tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, digitalis toxicity associated with arrhythmias, and torsade de point. But the authors point out that magnesium's role in the pathogenesis of arrhythmias is difficult to ascertain since magnesium deficits often coexist with potassium and calcium deficiencies. Multiple studies in both human and veterinary patients have documented the resolution of torsade de point after magnesium sulfate infusion. Magnesium supplementation decreases the incidence of ventricular arrhythmias and atrial fibrillation following cardiopulmonary bypass and coronary artery bypass in humans with magnesium deficiency. And you may know that in human medicine, some people are quick to use magnesium in the treatment of some ventricular dysrhythmias in particular, although I've not investigated the evidence base for that myself, and I must also say that I haven't had the time to actually look at what's out there in the literature in terms of the use of magnesium supplementation in the treatment of dysrhythmias in veterinary patients. Okay, so there's more in the review article about other potential effects of magnesium deficiency, but I'm going to leave it there and move on to say a few words about the treatment of magnesium disorders. So in terms of treatment, the authors say that the decision to treat a suspected or diagnosed magnesium disorder will depend on the severity of the clinical signs and the magnitude of change from normal range of the serum magnesium level of the patient. They provide a bit more in the way of detailed treatment recommendations with some references. Again, the references are mostly from human medicine with a couple of veterinary ones. And again, they would ideally need to be reviewed individually to understand the strength of their evidence. So in terms of magnesium excess, then hypermagnesemia is treated by replacing magnesium-containing medications or fluids with magnesium-free ones, promoting urinary excretion and inhibiting renal tubular reabsorption of magnesium are the mainstays of treatment for moderate to severe hypermagnesemia and when clinical signs are apparent. So for example, cardiac dysrhythmias, hypotension that may be the result of the magnesium disorder. And so this uh, promotion of urinary excretion and inhibition of renal tubular reabsorption is achieved using sodium chloride diuresis with or without diuretics. 
And in the article, the authors mention some pros and cons of the different diuretic types. Acute magnesium toxicity from iatrogenic overdose <clears throat> can be treated with calcium gluconate, as well as obviously promoting excretion and inhibiting reabsorption. And the authors say that hemo or peritoneal dialysis using a magnesium-free dialysate may be necessary to treat symptomatic magnesium excess resulting from kidney disease or iatrogenic overdose. Now again, I realize that this is not a treatment modality that is available to all of you. With respect to magnesium deficiency, the authors suggest that if the magnesium deficit is mild, dietary changes and oral magnesium salts such as magnesium carbonate or oxide may be sufficient to increase magnesium intake. Oral magnesium supplementation should be considered in small animal patients at risk for chronic mild magnesium deficit. So for example, those with uh, GI malabsorptive diseases or if they're on chronic digoxin or loop diuretic therapy. <clears throat> so this is um, not something that's likely to be of relevance in the emergency setting, but maybe more long-term. And I must admit that I have no personal experience of oral magnesium supplementation per se. Next, the authors say that animals symptomatic for low magnesium should be treated with an IV infusion of magnesium sulfate or magnesium chloride and they recommend accounting for the magnesium content of any IV fluids being used when you calculate your magnesium supplementation doses. With respect to doses, the authors point out that the optimum dosage and rate of magnesium administration have not been defined for veterinary patients, and they provide some details of the experimental canine study that they say has been the basis of the magnesium sulfate dose recommendations in dogs and cats. I'm not going to say any more about this, and clearly you should consult resources if you're actually considering administering IV magnesium supplementation to a patient. The next point I did want to raise, though, is what the authors have entitled magnesium infusion as an adjunct to therapy. <clears throat> and they say that the multifaceted role of magnesium in cells has led researchers and clinicians in human medicine to explore the effects of infusing magnesium as an adjunct to therapy for various conditions. And so they cite a reference of 1974 for the potential use of magnesium in shock resuscitation. And they say that current studies of brain injury, spinal injury, pain, sepsis and SIRS, hypercoagulable states, eclampsia, tetanus and ischemia have demonstrated potential beneficial effects from magnesium administration. In these situations, magnesium is not given to replace a documented deficiency, but instead it's given for its beneficial effects in specific cells. And the authors say that though all syndromes reported in people may not be common in veterinary patients, knowledge of the possible mechanisms of action of magnesium infusion on various tissues may allow extrapolation into the veterinary population of patients. <clears throat> the authors do comment further on specific mechanisms and scenarios, but I'm not going to elaborate further on this. Suffice it to say that, as always, we really need to keep our evidence-based medicine in mind when reading this type of stuff. The authors say that current studies have demonstrated potential beneficial effects in a variety of scenarios, well, we should ideally explore the evidence for that statement further to ensure that we are happy that it is legitimate. 
And then they raise our all favorite where they talk about the extrapolation from humans to veterinary patients. As always, we need to be cognizant of the legitimacy or lack thereof of actually doing that. The one area in which I have encountered first-hand discussion of using magnesium as an adjunct to therapy despite normal plasma concentrations is in the treatment of dogs with autonomic dysfunction due to tetanus. And the authors say the magnesium sulfate has been utilized in the treatment of autonomic dysfunction associated with severe generalized tetanus in both people and dogs. The veterinary reference that they cite is actually just a single case report from JVEC in 2011. Now, I have not done a literature search to see if there's anything else out there, but I know that among my specialist colleagues, both in ECC, neurology and internal medicine, there are mixed views. Some will try magnesium early, some will try it later, and some won't try it at all in tetanus cases. One point that the authors do allude to in this section is basically about the risk-benefit assessment. And so they say that the administration of magnesium as an adjunctive therapy in the tetanus patient has not been associated with adverse side effects. So I guess their implication being that it may not help but is also unlikely to do any harm, so maybe we should give magnesium a go. Of course, there is the potential to actually induce hypermagnesemia in these patients, and this is something that ideally one would be able to monitor for if considering supplementing magnesium in dogs with tetanus. The other thing to bear in mind is that when they say that the use of magnesium as an adjunctive therapy in the tetanus patient has not been associated with adverse side effects, is, well, you know, what's the evidence for that? So how many cases are we talking about? What's the quality of the information being reported and so on? I would also say that if any of you have any experience or views on the use of magnesium in tetanus, or indeed if you know of any other veterinary references offhand, then please do get in touch and let me know. Okay, so by way of conclusion of the review article, the authors say, and I'm going to read this word for word, Magnesium is an important intracellular cation required for energy production and cell function in every organ. Changes in magnesium homeostasis have consistently been correlated with increases in morbidity and mortality in veterinary and human critical patients. Assessment of serum magnesium concentration should become a routine part of critical patient evaluation since the clinical signs and conditions associated with magnesium disorders can be non-specific and varied. Equipment to measure serum ionized or total magnesium is readily available in hospital. However, measurement of serum magnesium may not reflect total body magnesium concentration. The serum magnesium concentration, combined with clinical signs and conditions associated with magnesium disorders, are used to make the diagnosis and to monitor treatment. Research is exploring the role of magnesium infusions as an adjunct to standard therapy for clinical disorders such as head trauma, reperfusion injury, and vascular disease. And further studies are expected to better define the role of magnesium in critical illness and investigate potential benefits of magnesium infusion in veterinary patients. And look, I guess my position is that when it comes to the clinical aspects and recommendations that the authors make, I don't necessarily disagree with what they're saying. 
However, I'm also not sure that there is actually the evidence base in dogs and cats to support the statements at this time. So for me, it is most definitely an area of ongoing interest to see what more comes to light as we go forward. And at what point do we stop really extrapolating from human medicine over to veterinary patients, sometimes extrapolating evidence from human medicine that in and of itself is not particularly of good quality or particularly conclusive. So definitely an area of interest and something to keep an eye on for me. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode. As always, there are references for the review article and a couple of the other papers that I mentioned in the show notes. And you can also find a link to download a transcript there. Please do get in touch if you have any comments or questions. You can use the contact form on the website. You can email me at shailenjassani at gmail.com. You can get hold of me via Twitter at vetemcc or via Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Small Talk page. And don't forget that there's also a private Veterinary ECC Small Talk group that you can request to join on Facebook. Before I finish, I just wanted to mention again my new Small Animal Emergency Medicine app, which currently is for iPhones and iPads. Thank you very much to those of you who have already bought it, and especially those who have taken the time to leave ratings and review comments in the Apple App Store. You can find the app by searching for Kimba Veterinary, so K-I-M-B-A, Kimba Veterinary, or just go to KimbaVetApps.com and there is a link to the app in the App Store on the website and I will include links in the show notes and as I mentioned before a number of you have been in touch requesting an Android version it is in development and hopefully should be available sometime around about maybe April uh, of 2016 that we're in at the moment okay and lastly my usual request to help support the podcast by rating and reviewing it in iTunes and also please do share with friends and colleagues who you think would also benefit from the content The next episode will be in around four weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.